Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the story, stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with me is our other co-host, I'm Drew Tan. Yo, 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 everyone. How's it going, everybody? So today, it's our uh, 52nd episode, and I guess because the number 52 has some sort of significance to DC Comics, we, we thought it would be funny to <laughs> do a DC-centric episode for our 52nd episode. Specifically, we're going to talk about the new 52. Yeah. So it's already been about, what, uh, nine years yeah, September 2011 was when the New 52 originally launched. And uh, it's about time for a little retrospective. I guess maybe people like to look back 10 years after, uh, but we're not like those other people, man. We, we don't have to wait 10 whole years. <laughs> Nine years is cool our, enough, right? Our 52nd <laughs> episode came up now, so I, I don't consider it inopportune or out of place. I If anything, I, I'm... I'm willing to overlook the the missing year if it means that it syncs up if, in order for us to talk about it. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, next year we'll do one one year later. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> a dig. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, here's the thing, Albert. When we're talking about the new Fifty Two, um, I was I was talking to to Ray. And uh, for those of our listeners, you might remember Ray from uh, the episode we did after uh, Avengers Endgame came out last year. But but he was someone that I knew enjoyed uh, the New 52 uh, overall, you know, generally mm-hmm. speaking. He actually uh, bought all 52 first issues Ooh. when they came out back Whoa. in the day, right? And we were, we were kind of talking about, uh, about or texting about the, the topic and... Uh, I guess we were just texting about the podcast in general, or that's where the conversation went. And then he asked uh, an interesting question, and I I don't know if I'll be able to relate his question to the rest of our podcast uh, at the end. But before we tackle the new fifty two, I thought it'd be fun to address his question. And his question is: Do you think a reader changes their perspective on comics? Like whether you think it's good or bad or vice versa, you think a reader changes their perspective on comics after going through life changes like you know marriage, uh, death, loss of a job, etc. And if so, uh, what were some of those books for you where your perspective changed after you went through a life change? See, that's the interesting thing. I would, I would happen to agree with the idea that. Uh, as we evolve our appreciations for our appreciation for certain ideas and themes uh, are to would evolve with with our personal with the personal changes in our lives so mm-hmm. I, I definitely believe that uh, that that's a thing that happens where where for a lot of people myself included that there might be things that, in one season of my life, I may it, it might not have hit quite as hard for me, but uh, as I've matured and or as I've aged, there's 
there's a likelihood that rereading something that I, you know meant nothing to me at a particular point in time uh, could have substantially more meaning further down the road. So I, I do think that's a thing that could happen. Um, but that being said, I would say that since my life is in a perpetual state of stasis and unchange, <laughs> I have not had I have not had anything happen to me that was so significant that it changed my outlook on anything that I've read. <laughs> I'm emotionally stunted. Uh, I am uh, mentally stunted. <laughs> I have no children, so I will never know whether a comic about being a father is something that I will enjoy. <laughs> uh. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about his question too, and and I, I, f- I think the first thing that came to my mind was something similar along what you said. Just how it doesn't really feel like my life has changed very much in in the past, you know, fifteen years or or so. So it's hard for me to personally point to a specific comic and be like. That was a comic I read when I was younger, and at first I didn't think very much of it, but when I got older and something happened to me, that comic that I was once uh, a little bit indifferent to has suddenly become a comic that resonates with me because of an experience I had. Um, yeah, I can't I can't say I can think of a comic like that, um, but there are are definitely comics where as I got older, I was able to appreciate them more. And I don't know if it was necessarily because I had experienced something specific in life. Like it definitely wasn't because, uh, you know, I got married or anything because I'm not (laughs) married, but, or or had kids or anything like that, you know, but I think it's, it's more along the lines of just as you get older, sometimes your mind, uh, I don't know. You just get a little I think bit you more receptive to uh, certain ideas, ideas that might have. Yeah. You're more receptive to something. Yeah. And, and some of maybe something that was a little more complicated when you were younger. Um, now that you're older, you can grasp it a little better or you just develop more empathy in general. Um, and, and that's what allows you to appreciate something more. But I was also thinking about what, what are some of the comics, um, that I could see myself uh, growing in appreciation for after undergoing some kind of life change. So I was like, the, for some reason, the ones that came across my mind were works that are a little bit heavy or emotionally heavy and, and sad. That absolutely like I, makes sense. There's this comic. Yeah. Like there's this comic I read, <clears throat> um, maybe i don't know two years ago now one or two years ago i have a copy of it if you ever want to borrow it but it's by uh the cartoonist tom hart he did a lot of indie comics in the 90s and you know he still makes comics today uh, he, his famous comic is this thing called hutch owen it's uh i remember reading some of that 
back in like the early 2000s because I think I think Shane has had some I, I don't really remember it too well other than I think it was like kind of a irreverent and and that like irreverent kind of humor um it didn't really stick with me but I just remembered the art was good and he was you know he was a good cartoonist but a few years ago he did a Tom Hart he did a comic called Rosalie Lightning and it was an autobiographical memoir about his his daughter his daughter who actually died very suddenly uh when she was 2 years old and it was about him and his wife processing their grief and trying to make sense of their life uh in the wake of this unexpected death I, he he doesn't explain uh like how she died or anything and i'm not really sure it it might have just it was just I, all i really know um was that it was sudden and it was obviously unexpected um but the whole thing was like him and his wife processing their lives and uh remembering their happy memories with with their daughter and i read that and like it it was heavy man like it that's a that's a comic that definitely brought me to tears um and i've never experienced anything like that i've never experienced like number one i'm not a father and, and number two I, I can't really experience uh or imagine the experience of losing a, a daughter at such a young age but um yeah just just reading that comic it it definitely took me to a place where i couldn't i wouldn't think of it on my own um and it's not something that i would ever hope to experience but something like that it's it's that's a comic that for some reason came to my mind when when i was thinking about the question it's mm -hmm. like if if i were a father would that hit me even harder um i don't know i mean i guess it probably would but i have no way of knowing for certain unless i've become a father but it, it's that's definitely something that uh if i ever do have a kid i'll i'll go back and and read that comic so I'll be uh, you know, more fearful to preserve my child's life than ever. Interesting. Um, no, I, I, I get that. I, there are some things that are uh, universal. So, like, I, yeah, I, I'd be with you in the sense that I, yeah, I, I don't have any kids. I've, I've never suffered the loss of a child, uh, of my child, uh, at that. So it's hard for me to admit, like, I don't, yeah, uh, I don't know that, you know, having experienced something like that, whether I would be in a position to feel it more deeply if I had in actuality experienced something like that. So that, um, yeah, but listening to you talk about that, that does, I guess my mind wandered in a in a different direction in terms of like mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like comics that have that sort of effect on me. Um, and one of the things that I thought of was I do think something like Calvin and Hobbes, for example, right? Or there are yeah. like comics. There are a lot of comics that. Uh, you know, uh, that explore 
childhood or nostalgia. And I could see myself, if I was a child and I was reading it, I, I might just be in a place to enjoy it for the entertaining elements of whatever the story is. But yeah, yeah, Calvin and Hobbes in particular is like one example that I can think of where reading it as an adult, there's there is something that takes you back to it and it's not that i never had an appreciation for 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 that comic strip but i do find that as an adult reading it my appreciation deepened you know so yeah absolutely yeah. same here cuz that's a that's a comic strip that we grew up with in the in the 90s and yeah and I, I'd say that as a kid, I read it and I loved it because of the fantastic artwork. Like he, when you look at Calvin and Hobbes, like the artwork for it's that fun. is like levels above. Yeah, it's levels above any other uh, daily comic book, comic strip, you know, in the newspaper. Like his that that dude's art, Bill Watterson's art is so, so good. Yeah. Um, and and I really liked it because of the art, because of the funny jokes and the yeah just the general humor but i I think as i've gotten older the the humor also hits in a different way now too you know like there i think there were some subtleties that i totally missed when i was a kid um (laughs) yeah and and now that i'm older and and able to perceive and understand things like there's the humor it's still humorous but the humor just hits in a different way but yeah, I appreciate yeah. it for and sure. And I'd even add that there are things that Bill Watterson was saying as an adult telling stories about childhood that I might not have fully understood on the face of it as a child, but as an adult reading it and having experienced my childhood now and you know my childhood being decades behind me at this point, um there's there's a profundity to what bill watterson has to say in his comic strip you know i mean like it granted it was a very long-running comic strip and you know he's they're not all like super serious or whatever but there are times there are there are moments of poetry and moments of uh profound thought and idea ideas that he was communicating in those strips just moving, moving thoughts, moving ideas that, again, as an adult, uh, looking back at a childhood that has passed me by, like it's, it's, it's stuff that moves you, moves me. Yeah, yeah, totally, still resonates. And maybe that's one of the things about really good comics in general. I mean, I guess any kind of book or something that you read um like things that we read can build uh understanding and and empathy so i feel like for us you know people who read a lot we're we're able to activate our imaginations and even though we haven't been in the shoes of uh, you know, like a, a father or uh, something like that. 
it doesn't really take too much to imagine what it would be like, you know, and, and that's the power of literature, you know, the power of comics as well, just to be able to read something that transports you into the mentality of what it's like for another person's experience. People say that reading builds empathy and uh, I think I think that's true, man. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, man, totally. It's uh, it's it's emotional exercise for the soul. Yeah. So if you uh, ever get married, I guess you got to reread all the comics about marriages and you know see how maybe the the Spider-Man Mary Jane wedding issue will hit you hard. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there are levels you to can, it that uh, I wouldn't under, that I'm incapable of understanding now because yeah <laughs> you can you can get married and then and then reread one yeah. more day and experience what it's like to make a deal with the devel <laughs> and lose your marriage. <laughs> and, I was going to say <laughs> maybe that will maybe that's going to give you appreciation for a bad comic. <laughs> I was going to say I could get married read those comics See if I feel any different, and if I don't, I'll leave her. <laughs> it wasn't worth it. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, yeah. I think how that question plays into our topic today in our discussion about the New Fifty Two is is that New Fifty Two is something that took place in the past and. I wonder if, with the passage of time, if anything has changed the way that we regard some of those older comics. Because I know at the time when they were coming out, we we pretty mercilessly disrespected and mocked those comics, mm-hmm. the, the line in general. Um, so I, I wonder if anything has changed in the past nine years in terms of how we regard the new 52 but before we answer that let's start off with a bit of context albert tell me what's your recollection of that era in comics leading up to the launch of the new 52 like what were you into at the time and and maybe you talk a little bit about that and then and then uh just explain what the new 52 was um Yeah, so that time period is actually a little fuzzy to me in terms of in in terms of like what was coming out at the time before the New Fifty Two. So, yeah, I I I can't. It's weird, like the disconnect that exists there in my mind. Like I know that I was reading DC Comics at some point, and then all of a sudden this new initiative rolls out. They, they were making this big deal about the new 52 and essentially what it was, was comics have comics have this. The problem with comics is they exist on a timeline that doesn't, uh, or, okay. The problem that the publishers perceive or DC as a publisher perceives with comics is that it exists on a timeline that doesn't match up with people, real people like, flesh and blood people basically so you know you could have started collecting comics when you were 13 but 
by the time you're uh, 30 or 40, um, if you're still reading comics, the, I, I think their, their fear was that people would look at Batman and they'd be like, how is this guy still in his 20s after all these years or whatever, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, realistically, uh-huh. most of us are like, or I'm not going to say most of us, me and you are pretty... We have the self-awareness to go, these are comics. It's, it it yeah. really doesn't matter in that sense, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, as long as the story yeah. is good, I don't, need to, I don't need to do the mental gymnastics to understand why Batman hasn't aged in 40 years. Batman hasn't aged in 40 years because mm-hmm. he's not real, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's drawing on a piece of paper. Simple as that. As simple as yeah. that. Like, I don't, I don't, look, I love my comics, but I don't venerate it to the, to the level that I need everything to, you know, quote unquote, make sense to me or like to, to reconcile, uh, with reality because I know it's not reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Totally. So, uh, you know, that was kind of a long winded rant, but to, to, to explain what the new 52 was, but essentially what DC as a publisher did with the new 52 was after a couple of decades, they wanted to keep their characters fresh and they wanted to, for those kinds of fans that need to have things make sense, they needed a device within the story, within the, the comic book universe to make it make sense essentially. Right. So Mm-hmm. So the new 52 was a publishing initiative that would, in short, uh, de-age all of the history of the heroes of, of all the different comics that they have. They would rewrite all the history so that it would it would make sense that everybody was younger and that People wouldn't mm-hmm. have all these years of history that other readers would have a hard, would theoretically have a hard time uh, following up on, following up on, or accessing, or or you know finding their yeah. way into these characters. Um, yeah, I don't know. Personally, I think it's a little, it's a little insulting to the reader to think that they can't make sense of some of these things, but. well there is there there definitely is stuff that doesn't make sense no matter how hard you think about it yeah yeah and yeah i i don't deny that i don't deny that (laughs) (laughs) but i'm not convinced that what they did was the solution either (laughs) (laughs) yeah so when you were asking me about like comics that stood out to me like did you mean like prior to the new 52 like what was i into or like were you talking about the actual yeah yeah like just around that era like you know like the late uh 2010s i will i will admit that from what i remember of that era uh dc had stagnated a little bit at that point from what i remember so okay like it's coming back to me now now that i think about it but prior to the new 52 they had done things like like uh, Green Lantern Rebirth 
and a lot of the Green Lantern stuff was was probably their hotter stuff at at the time. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Johns. Um, he he was their he golden was, boy. Yeah, but even in terms of like the Justice League at the time, like it was it was kind of they weren't in a strong period. I think after Mark Wade, they had some some guest writers for a little while. You had like Kurt Busiek, and then they even got Claremont and. Yeah, you're you're thinking of like the really early two yeah, thousands yeah, yeah. now, in the yeah, mid two thousands. Well, I mean, yeah. What I was gonna say was, but at some point, like they started doing that. Brad, what Brad Metzer Justice League, and they had a McDuffie Justice League. Yeah, after right that. after. Uh, I think that was after either Identity Crisis or Infinite Crisis. Yeah. I think it was after Identity yeah, yeah, Crisis. Yeah. I want to say that was that in and of itself was was kind of already a dropping off point uh the brad metzer justice league was significantly or to me personally it was significantly less interesting than you know the morrison or the wade stuff or the kelly stuff or you know like there was there mm-hmm. was just a long stretch of time where the justice league was just killing it and, and yeah you know and then there we were that's that's what we had uh was this was that that era in post identity crisis? Um, it it all culminated with that one comic where Arsenal uh, Roy Harper, the former Speedy sidekick to Green Arrow, he got high on some <laughs> drugs and then went into an alleyway and beat up some homeless people with a dead cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was uh, that was not a that was a pretty. It wasn't a high point, but it was unforgettable. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what about what about you, Drew? What were some of the comics that you remember, you know, preceding uh, the New 52 initiative? Yeah. yeah, I think up to that point, I wasn't really reading as much DC because they had, I don't know, a lot of the stuff that they were doing did lose my interest especially when it comes to their came to their uh, superhero stuff because there was uh grant morrison's batman run that was still going on and i was i was following that um in terms of uh reading the issues like i'll, I'll admit that i wasn't actually buying the, the comics but uh back in those days there were bookstores like borders had a had a rack with uh, monthly comics, so I would read the comics there. <laughs> um, but other than Morrison's Batman, I I don't. I, I'm having trouble remembering specific. Right, it's kind of a blind spot series. now. Like when you think about it. Yeah, it's weird because because when I think about that era, I I I can kind of remember the Marvel stuff I was reading. Like I was still into Bendis's Avengers. Uh, there was his, I was still reading, uh, Ultimate Spider-Man. Um, there was, uh, the Matt Fraction, Matt Fraction was doing like Thor. He was beginning his, uh, uh, tenure at Marvel. So we were getting all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He was doing, uh, Iron Man, Invincible Iron Man. Uh, Captain America by Brubaker was still going on. I think I think 2011. I think that might have been the year Avengers versus X Men came out. Mm. Um, you know, so so like it's weird. I I can still kind of remember 
um, some of the Marvel stuff I was reading. But when it comes to DC, the only things I was really into was the Vertigo stuff. Yeah. You know, like Fables was still happening at the time. So I was in, and I was always into Fables. Uh, I think, I think Sweet Tooth was going on at that time. But I was a little bit late to the Sweet Tooth party. I don't remember if I was reading it or if I read any of it in 2011. But I'm pretty sure Sweet Tooth was uh, being serialized at that point. I mean, speaking of which, I do Uh, feel like Sweet Tooth was one of the last... Like, one of the last few good things coming out of Vertigo. Because, yeah, there used to be a point where... uh, Well, yeah. There used to be a lot yeah. more good Vertigo, but then it feels like Sweet Tooth was kind of the marking. Well, you know what it was, man, was because the, the New 52 was the beginning. Well, that was the death knell for Vertigo. Like once they did the New 52 and they were like, we're going to take these characters and properties that had for the past like 20 years really been successful under the Vertigo label, meaning like animal man and, and swamp thing and hellblazer or john constantine we're gonna take those guys and put them back into the quote-unquote proper dc yeah. universe you know and and uh dude peter milligan was still in the middle of his run on hellblazer when the new 52 came out um and then they had him put uh constantine in the in the regular universe. justice league yeah. dark in the new 52 so he was writing two different versions of John Constantine. And they're versions that don't necessarily like sync up either. Because for those of you who don't really know, the, the Vertigo version of John Constantine was... I mean, it was a very mature comic, right? Like, it, it, it was not something that was meant for kids. It was... Uh, yeah. It covered adult subject matter and... You know, I don't. I don't want to say that it was gratuitous or anything, uh, but it. Yeah, it was a mature reader's book yeah, for a yeah, reason. Exactly right. It didn't shy away from from those things. And what DC wanted to do was they wanted to cash in on on this character who was basically a prestige character. It was someone that had built up a reputation as being this mature, uh, mature line of comics. And they were like, well, we're going to find a way to put him into, you know, this world with Superman and Batman and, you know, the Flash and all that. And you think that's really why they wanted to do it? Because I always thought the reason was because they wanted to find a new way to screw Alan Moore. I'm sure that both those things are. (laughs) I'm pretty sure both those things are are true. There's no reason that they can't both be true. Fair point. Um, yeah, they killed two birds yeah, with one stone. I mean, one, they found a way to cash in on it by, you know, watering him down for the masses. And two, um, they were able to simultaneously slap, in it, slap Alan Moore in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't ever do anything in my life unless I'm sure, absolutely sure that it doesn't humiliate another human being. <laughs> <laughs> does me crossing this street will it ruin somebody's day 
there better be a child that I can kick on the other side of this street. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't wait for you to become a father. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm going to be terrible to my kids, but I'm going to be terrible to other people's kids too. So, you know, wait till that first day of school. (laughs) (laughs) So around summer of 2011, DC decides they're going to, revamp not revamp reboot their continuity so they do this they get their golden boy jeff johns to do another crisis event called flashpoint which is a five issue miniseries it was five right five issues i think remember honestly um a story about barry allen who was the flash that uh jeff johns had brought back to life it's a. It's actually a pretty. So for those of you who um, who who follow like the Flash TV show, or uh, even some of the animated movies, like to to DC Flashpoint was a big story for them, and it's something that they've uh, they've cashed or they've tried to milk several times over. To the point where, uh, and like it's weird because it's it was a relatively new story at the time, right? And then mm-hmm. after they did it, they had the Flash TV show, which drew a lot of those elements from the Flashpoint story and applied it to the TV show. And then they made a movie, an animated movie based on that. And I think there was even talk that some of the Snyder films, the the Justice League Snyder films, were going to borrow some of those ideas from Flashpoint. So, um, yeah, for those of you that, you know, if you watch any of those things, you might have been absorbing Flashpoint without realizing uh, what the original comic book DNA was. Uh, But, in short, the story is that Barry Allen, the Flash, decides he, he he decides to use his super speed to go back in time and uh, prevent the death of his mother. But you know, whenever these time travel stories happen, whenever someone tries to go back in time to change the past, something always goes wrong because don't do that, right? So he goes back in time. Well, do you think that if you ever get to a place where, let's say, let's say uh, if, if your mother gets murdered by a supervillain, do you think this story would resonate with you because you'd feel, <laughs> you know, you'd sympathize with Barry Allen's decision to destroy time? Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, <laughs> yeah, that's. It, I mean, first of all, we all know my aversion to time travel stories to begin with. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not... Uh, Terminator 2 and Back to the Future are, are the best time travel stories for me. And that, those are those are all I need. Um, so, if, if there's a time travel story and it's a good one, fine. Okay. I'm cool with that. But 
by and large, I would say that I'm pretty over time travel stories as a concept. Just okay, you know. okay, fair okay. enough. So, yeah, Barry Allen, the Flash, decides to go back in time to stop the murder of his mother. But as a result of him going back in time, he messes up the present. And what ends up happening is the world he comes back to is significantly altered from the world that he knew. So naturally, you know, they spend the five issues uh, fighting, you know, reintroducing what all of the new versions of the characters look like in this world. And, uh, you know, there's an internal conflict within the world as well. But ultimately what ends up happening is Barry Allen needs to go back and fix this and make the, make the, the, the world that he lived in come back. He needs to set everything right, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so he does what he has to do, and he comes back to the world that, uh, you know, that he lives in, and he stopped the catastrophe from happening. He stopped the, the dystopian version of the world from happening. But at the same time, the world that he brought back, although very close to the world that he left originally, there are still a lot of significant changes to it. And they and DC as a publisher used that logic to explain away all of the changes in the universe. How's that for a descriptor of what Flashpoint was? And uh, uh, am I missing anything? It, no, no. I mean, I guess... It just shows that that was a pretty, I guess, boring story. It was pretty boring. <laughs> I thought I also it, thought it was, was pretty a pretty lazy way to like explain. It, yeah, away. it was. It was a super lazy. It was a super lazy way to to to. It it, it it's supposed to streamline the universe, but, well, but all it really did was make things in some ways more confusing yeah. because. If you actually look at the different titles in the New 52, you'll notice that some of them actually do have a new history, uh-huh. whereas some of them take that new history and combine it with elements of the history that has been popular yeah. in the past. You know, like like let's let's take a look at uh, Grant Morrison's Batman, right? So like the the point of Flashpoint was that the universe resets. So when the new 52 begins, it's a new universe, a consolidated universe. And uh, I think what it's basically set 10 years or five or 10 years uh, in the, you know, everybody's five or 10 yeah. years younger they wanted than they to were subtract before Flashpoint. Five or 10 years from everybody's age so <clears throat> that the universe yeah. would be full of these young, fresh superheroes. They would, we would, they would be existing in a world where the idea of a superhero was new to them. And yeah, so like there's there's a, a, an element of danger when people look at Superman because they don't know who he is yeah. really. But then, but then, uh, yeah, because like Grant Morrison did action comics that that showed Superman's uh, his early know, his, years, not necessarily his origin, but like his, his, him appearing to the people for the yeah. first time, right? But then you, you have uh, Grant Morrison's Batman. So he had started his story on in Batman 
well before the new 52 was even conceived and after the new 52 launched he continued his batman story but he now had to accommodate this new continuity which no longer makes sense because his story his story is about the history of you know it has yeah exactly it's about the history of batman you know he's he's got a son he's had three three or four robins well yeah um and and now we're supposed to believe that Batman is 10 years younger, but he still had time to raise Dick Grayson and Tim Drake. And, and like, Jason Todd. What the heck, dude? That, that doesn't make any sense when you do yeah. the math. Yeah. That, that's yeah. dumb. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that sums it up, though, right? Like, when, when their, like, solution to it was, well, he came back, you know, but he had already affected... So the Flash came back to the present, but he had already done things to the past that altered the universe so anything different that you see is attributed to what he did in the past so it, yeah. it reminds that's tedious it, it reminds man. me of this episode of the simpsons um it was one of the halloween episodes and the <laughs> it was an episode that had lucy lawless as xena warrior princess nice. and can you do her battle no, cry? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Can you do her battle cry in your 1920s Chicago gangster and voice? She, la, 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 la. <laughs> 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 it's stone shoes for you, see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so um. In, in the episode, Lucy Lawless is, uh, she's basically at a comic book store, and these, these for the better, better lack of a word, these nerds are asking her a question about the show, right? And, like, one of them asks a question about, like, a horse. He goes, and he's saying something like, well, in this one scene, you were riding this kind of horse, but in this other scene, you're clearly riding an Appaloosa, which is a completely different kind of horse. How do you explain <laughs> that, Lucy Lawless? <laughs> Lucy Lawless's answer is, oh, whenever you see something like that, it's because a wizard did it. And then the guy is just kind of, he's crestfallen that that's the answer, but he's just like, oh, okay. And then he sits down, and then another nerd comes up, and he's about to ask a question and before he even finishes his question, Lucy Lawless just goes, "It was a wizard." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that was basically like their thought process behind how they wanted to make this new universe, right? So, anytime yeah. there was an inconsistency, you'd have like their answer was, "Well, that's just the way it was," because you know when he came back, the universe was was imperfect or incomplete or affected so there you go which is yeah it's pretty dismissive the thing with dc with the new 52 is that they they wanted to have have it both ways you know they they wanted a new continuity but they also didn't want to ignore or disregard uh you know very famous and beloved stories from their past either yeah and yeah they wanted to have it both ways and it that was that was silly so one of the things about the New 52, I don't, I'm not even sure if we uh, really stated it or made it clear, but after Flashpoint, they 
canceled or during Flashpoint they canceled all their ongoing series and and then they after Flashpoint ended in September of 2011 they relaunched their entire line of superhero comics with 52 new number 1 issues yeah. hence the name the new 52 yeah so Dan DiDio their publisher like for whatever reason like the fi- 52 as a number i mean the main thing was it was because there were 52 weeks in a year. But, well, I mean, I don't know if it's the main thing, but, you know, he he built a lot of things around the idea of the number 52, right? So, yeah, this new line would have 52 comics. There was a series, a weekly series called The 52. Um, wait, was it called 52? Countdown? It was... Yeah, there was a the first weekly series that they ever did was called Fifty Two. Yeah, so this was like maybe around two thousand six yeah. or so. So, like it was just a big theme that they were hammering home constantly, you know. Uh, and yeah, and for the life of me, I still can't figure out why Fifty Two was so important, other than just some arbitrary decision that, you know, it'd be cool to do that there are 52 weeks. I mean, it it could have easily just have been 365, you know? <laughs> we're going to have three. They could have published 365 first yeah, issues. Yeah, we're going to have 365 first issues. There are 365 universes in the multiverse now. Only 365, <laughs> right? Or they could it could have been 12 for the months. It would it would have been better if they just said seven. Why is that? Then we wouldn't have had to read too many comics, you know. It would be a lot easier to do this episode. Okay, okay. we could have we could have done this on our seventh episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the it it didn't help me personally that the the idea behind it or like one of the big tentpole themes of of this new universe was just the number 52, you know? That's an episode of Sesame Street. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. (laughs) So, what do you remember about the launch of the new 52, and what do you remember about the books themselves? I think at the time I didn't really have much to think about it. Um, I knew it was a big deal because they were, they were doing, uh, yeah, it was a big deal because uh, they were revamping, relaunching this entire line. Right. And uh, Mm -hmm. prior to that, so DC has a history of doing these launches over and over again, but, the, the last big version of that that I can remember, uh, that I think it's the one that they constantly refer to because it's such a tentpole moment for them, is Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right? Yeah, that, from the late yeah, 80s. that was like the... I don't know if it was... I want to say it was the first time they had relaunched the universe in, in such a way. Yeah. And yeah. it... Rebooted the universe, and to them that was a big deal. And I think they think it's a success. 
Um, I don't know. Me personally, it, it was kind of a boring story. But Curses on Infinite Earth might have been boring, but the actual books that came in the yeah, wake of it, yeah. would you would you consider well, that, those? I will. Yeah, the the books following it were pretty spectacular. We got like a bunch of good stuff out of that. Animal Man like did a lot of interesting things uh, that tapped into what it meant to reboot things in in that in the light of Crisis of Infinite Earths, you know? So I will say mm-hmm. that there was a lot of interesting things that came out of it. Um, and a few years later, I didn't realize this was a crisis event, crisis-style event at the time, but they did something like Zero Hour. Yeah. And- uh, this was like such a bad story, but it it was a bad story that attempted to do something similar, which was like we're gonna try to you know reconcile streamline yeah, streamline the continuity, streamline the continuity recon, yeah reconcile some of the different uh, um, historical you know the the backstories of characters whatever what have you right, but I think the thing about Zero Hour was I think it was something that was so bad that people just, even though there were like big changes, I don't think anyone thought about it afterwards, you know, like it didn't even feel like the universe had changed in the aftermath. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't really make much of a dent in anyone's, it didn't make much of a dent for anyone. And it was quickly forgotten. And then, you know, it was a nineties crossover. So they had bigger problems to worry about, you know, with the implosion of the right, market. Right, right. But so it, it almost felt like you had probably like a couple of decades before they felt the need to do it again. And the yeah. funny thing is, it I'm not going to say zero hour was good, but the fact that it was something that I could ignore made it better than something like the new 52 in retrospect. <laughs> okay it's uh fairly harsh (laughs) but i like it man i like it yeah i like it so yeah so at the time i remember the new 52 was a big deal because yeah they were saying that everything that you know we're gonna you know change it all up and do away with it we're gonna cut the fat make it all lean right so I don't think I had any, like, particular opinions at the time. I was just like, oh, okay, we'll see how this goes. And even the titles that were coming out, I I didn't really have anything to think about them because I was just like, well, whatever whatever we get, we get, you know, because it just felt like the comics, it just felt like DC as a publisher was just this giant behemoth that was just going to keep, you know, just rolling stuff out just chugging along so in my mind i was just like well you know whatever we get is what we get and yeah it wasn't until things started coming out and i started reading them or reading about them that i was just yeah i I think at that point i had enough information to know that this was not something that i was into yeah 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 I think I was pretty similar. Um, the Obviously, there was so much marketing and hype behind the event 
that it couldn't be ignored at all. And even though, uh, you know, a few minutes ago we were saying how we weren't really we weren't reading too many DC series at the time, or if we were, they must have been so unremarkable that we've kind of forgotten exactly what we were reading in 2011. But I do distinctly remember hearing about all these titles. And, you know, that was still in in a time when I would pretty seriously study solicitations for upcoming comics and, you know, read all all sorts of stuff to to see what was coming out. Um, I I don't really do that quite as much anymore, um, at least not to such an obsessive degree. But I remember at the time I was like, I was just thinking how lame everything sounded. Like they were bringing back a bunch of writers that I thought had no yeah. talent. Uh, you know, like relics from the 90s, like Scott Lobdell uh, and, and like other artists that, that uh, they were no names yeah. to me. Um, like just not, an, they weren't people that I had any familiarity with. And I don't even know if a lot of them are still doing anything in comics today, or if they are, I don't think a lot of them have done comics that I've yeah. liked, yeah. you know? Um, and the other thing that pissed me off about the new 52 was the fact that I could, I think at the time I didn't realize it, but with retrospect, uh, now I, I can see how the new 52 was the, the beginning of the death knell for mm-hmm. Vertigo. But at the time, all it really just did piss me off that they were bringing uh, Hellblazer. They were, yeah, they were bringing Hellblazer into the DC universe. You know, like they were basically creating an an alternate version of John Constantine, or I guess now they they call him, you know, John Constantine. Mm-hmm. Um, they made him younger and making, you know, they were watering him down to to make him, like you said, fight alongside Batman and Superman and Wonder yeah. Woman. And that was never something that I was interested in seeing. Uh, the one saving grace of, of that was was that Peter Milligan, the my favorite writer, and the guy who was writing Hellblazer for Vertigo at the time, he was the one who was writing uh, Constantine's introduction into the DC universe. So there was that. But um, the other thing was was how the melding of this new the formation of this new uh, continuity brought wildstorm comics those characters into the new dc universe mm-hmm. so they they basically killed wildstorm and vertigo with this move and yeah that that's something that ticks me off man because wildstorm was doing a lot of yeah. great stuff like if you wanted if you wanted clever and unique superhero comics in the 2000s man you were looking at a wildstorm comic most likely you know they were doing stuff like sleeper and ex machina and i mean obviously the authority early in those days wildcats version 3.0 like all these all these innovative superhero books that were forward thinking and uh you know more suited to the discerning and sophisticated reader who wanted something in a superhero comics that was more than just your typical fisticuffs mm-hmm. and uh, you know splash pages and, and bombastic yeah. action, like there was actually you know thought to the craft and and storytelling in those comics that you didn't see in other typical superhero comics. Yeah. 
So the, the fact that they, they killed off Wildstorm and just wanted to take some of their more popular characters like uh, Grifter and Stormwatch and put them into the DC universe, that was yeah, lame. They did it for a cheap that, buck. I, I still don't support that. Yeah. For a quick buck. Yeah. Just as a means of like leveraging it for you know potentially more on the off chance that they could turn it into a property that they could you know yeah and and it it obviously didn't yeah. work they they made a stormwatch comic in the new 52 and i don't think anyone's clamoring for martian manhunter to lead stormwatch again yeah. you know uh, yeah yeah like, i don't, I don't totally. think i don't think anyone's I don't even think anyone's clamoring for Stormwatch in general, but the Certainly way that, that they did that Stormwatch. to Stormwatch, yeah, that that was that was utterly pointless and stupid. Like what what DC reader at the time of the New Fifty Two saw Stormwatch and was like, "Oh, sweet, Apollo and Midnighter are gonna be uh, in the DC universe. Maybe they'll fight Batman and Superman." That was right? literally like, what their thought was because. <laughs> because the authority was such a hot uh, I, property in the Wildstorm universe, and you might be even say that it was like the property that that you know Wildstorm was known for uh, mm-hmm. by the masses. So, what did they want to do? They they were like, let's take this thing that's like killing it, and let's see if we can have them meet Batman and Superman. How awesome would that be? <laughs> you know, and as it turns out, not awesome yeah, at all. Not not in the slightest. In fact, it yeah. was lame. <laughs> it was pretty yeah. lame. Like so so many books were they ended up being as disappointing as I expected them to yeah. be, honestly. Yeah. Um I'll say I don't I'll be honest, I don't think I read every single one of the 52 first issues. But I read a good amount of them. And I, I even... Dude, I, I gave stuff a try just to just to be, you know, fair-minded about things. And, and like, a lot of the stuff, I would end up waiting for the first trade to hit the library. And I would check it out just to, just to see, man. And all it really did was show me that I was right, yeah. you know? Like... You know, I th- I thought before it came out, before September 2011 came out, uh, before the New 52 happened, before Justice League International number one by Dan Jurgens came out, I thought it was going to suck. And when I read it, I confirmed <laughs> that it sucked. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it didn't help that Dan like, Jurgens was on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was weird to me that... He came back and, you know, they gave him a Justice League well, book. Like, he was a guy that was a big name for them in yeah. the 90s. They brought him. Uh, they, they brought, Like I said, they brought back Scott yeah. Lobdell. Um, I think, I, I want to say there was somebody else I, I can't remember, but who was also, oh, I think Paul Levitz wrote Paul something. Paul wrote Dr. Fade at the time, I think. Yeah. 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 They, they, they had all these, like, older dudes yeah. From, you know, their 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 time in the in the sun had passed, and and DC brought them back because I think Bob Harris was one of the executives or editors at DC, so he, he probably still had good relationships with some of these '90s guys. But man, 
that did not make for any good comics. Forget, did George Perez was, was that Superman part of the New Fifty Two? The George Perez Superman? Yeah, he did Superman. He's another like he, old so, name. So, yeah, yeah. So, Action Comics, I think, was Grant yeah. Morrison, and and Grant Morrison's story took place, uh, like, earlier in the timeline. So it was kind of like a flashback story or series, and and then so it was like a, a story about. Clark coming to Metropolis and and then becoming Superman for the first time, whereas George Perez's series was uh, Superman, like in the present day, um, already a full fledged superhero and part of the the Justice League and right, all right. that. Yeah, no, it, I, like I think, I think it's very telling, quite honestly, that you mentioned how um, they brought all these writers back right and it's it's weird to think that it was an initiative that was meant to bring new blood new new uh fans into the fold and you know it's for like on the face of it it's very like forward looking and it, it feels like it's something that that looks to the future of comics right but what was their mm-hmm. response to that was to go and find all these old writers whose whose exactly yeah. whose time had passed to come back and do these like big name uh to, to take lead roles in these comics, right? Even guys like Rob Liefeld, like I don't know, like I know they brought him back for some of the Titans stuff and maybe even Hawk and Dove. I, I... I think it was Deathstroke. It was a Deathstroke. I don't know if he did any Titan stuff. Okay, so, but he's a guy who, who who's a big name in the '90s, and personally, I can't say that he's aged well or his work has aged well. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he still has a fan base, believe it or not. Yeah. Like if you if you uh, go on Twitter or Instagram, there, he's got a pretty large following. There there are still people who who you know do support his yeah. work. That doesn't surprise me. Um, look, as as me living in 2020 and seeing all the different things that society or elements of society are willing to believe, um, yeah, the idea that Rob Liefeld still has, has fans does not crack like the top 10 things that should surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> you know um yeah yeah uh yeah it, it was just yeah guys like dan jurgens and uh scott lobdell they were i i have to wonder whether whether dc editorial looked back at them and was like do they just want these guys because these were big names that were, you know, getting sales in the 90s and whatever their respective periods of popularity were? Or do they look at these guys like, oh, yeah, these guys are good. <laughs> like, I, 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 I wonder that, right? Like, is was their motivation just name recognition for the sake of sales? Or was it a genuine belief that these guys who were, you know, 10, 20 years into the industry could 
come up with new ideas that would propel the the medium forward. Right. Wow. The the tone of skepticism <laughs> in your voice, Drew. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that says it all, man. The new Fifty Two, like, out of all those, uh, that first month, um, the first wave of Fifty Two titles, a lot of them would end up getting canceled prematurely. So, for some reason, DC was still committed to having Fifty Two series. So, you cut off one head, one more will rise in its place, I yeah. guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there over over the next from like twenty eleven to whenever it was that rebirth came out i think that was what 2016 maybe up to from that period of time like there were a bunch of titles under the the new 52 banner um and if if you go online to wikipedia you can take actually look at a list of all the all the titles and and how long uh they ran for it's 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 really a laundry list of of just really bad forgettable comics you know the 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 quarter bin sales that we go to are just littered with, you know, random issues of the Savage Hawkman yeah. or or uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws. Yeah. You know, it's like, and the crazy thing is is that Red Hood and the Outlaws that was another Scott Jobdell comic and lasted over forty issues, but so it 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 kind of blows me away that it that lasted that long. Um, but some of these other ones, you know, like there was a Grifter comic, there was a Voodoo comic, uh, you know, Wildcats characters. Yeah. Those those didn't last very long, and it, it it's yeah, it 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 didn't ever seem like a lot of these characters or properties deserved or needed their own series, yeah. and so many of them ended up being either forgettable or just plain flat out yeah. bad. The other thing that I wanted to mention, like, in tandem with the idea of, like, these old writers that they were uh, getting to work on these comics, is that they actually did have some writers, like, some name recognition writers, where I was like, okay, they're, they're decent, right? Or not even decent, they're, like, good writers, They, but it says something that even their works weren't particularly things that... Uh, that jumped yeah. out at me. Uh, you know, even yeah. even after I had gone out of my way to like read them. Um, so like some of the names that I can think of are like you had Robert Vendetti, um, who who would come off the surrogates, and he was kind of a hot name. And I mean, to be fair, I I haven't really read any of the stuff that he did, but. <laughs> how was that fair then <laughs> I, I will say that like what i had read of of uh, like the objection the objective description to the stuff that i had read of his wasn't stuff that like interested me too much for one thing yeah um okay yeah because i know they ended up putting him on like you know green lantern they ended up putting him on hawkman i think uh then you had like Lemire and Matt Kent doing several random things and we talked about this in one of our previous podcasts maybe even the last podcast where uh Jeff yeah, yeah. Jeff Lemire's DC yeah, work we talked, the stuff he did for their superhero yeah, line the Green Arrow was his lesser yeah. stuff 
Like, yeah. That Green Arrow wasn't anything that I was uh, super fond of. Um, he did he Animal, did Animal Man. Man. Uh, one of the big names to come out of that era was probably Scott Snyder, who was already a rising star before he went into it, but they they basically just gave him everything after that. Yeah, that made him... The New 52 turned him into a yeah. superstar when he took over Batman. Yeah. Um, he also did he Swamp also Thing. He also did Swamp Thing. Um, didn't he do Superman for a little while there? I think there was a Superman Unchained or Superman yeah, Eternal yeah, yeah, yeah. or something like that. I think Unchained like was what, what it was. Um, yeah, I think it might have been Batman Eternal. Yeah. I forget. Uh, Don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, man. Like, so so even the good writers that they did have, Matt Kent and Jeff Lemire, like their, their work was... Peter Milligan. This was not their best work. They... They weren't given the range. I, I personally don't think they were given the range or the freedom to do the stories the way that they wanted to do it or in a way that could have made them good. They, yeah, they weren't really set up for success. They you were. know what I'm saying? It's like they were they were put into a race where they were already like two laps yeah. behind everybody. So, you know, they could try yeah. their best, but... Unfortunately, it just wasn't going to be yeah. good enough because they were put in a bad spot. Like, I'm a massive Peter Milligan fan. You know, he's one of my favorite writers. Probably, he's definitely my top yeah. two, along with Joe Casey. And he did uh, Justice League Dark, which I, I did buy. Um, I think he only wrote, like, the first seven or nine issues. And he kind of left midway through through a <clears throat> crossover. But that first arc was solid, and then he he also did uh, he didn't launch Stormwatch, but I, he took over maybe like six or twelve issues into that run. Um, and I I've read like a couple issues of it, but I never read the whole thing. I own it all, but it's it's just I don't know, man. Like it's one of those comics that I own, and I've just been sitting on for years without having read it because. I'm not super interested right. in it, but I do believe that one day I will read it just because I want to read all of Peter Milligan's work, even the stuff that uh, he might not be proud of. Well, I don't want to say he's not proud of it because I don't know what he actually thinks right. of it. But, you know, that that's not when you think of Peter Milligan, you don't think of the new 52 Stormwatch. You know yeah. what I'm saying? That's not that's not what he made his name on. He also did uh, Red Lanterns. Which was a spinoff from the Jeff Johns creation. Yeah. Uh, that that's another book. I read the first couple issues. I have it all, but I've I've never finished reading it, even though I own it. Uh, the art's pretty bad. I think it's Ed Bennis, and he he just draws in that kind of uh, Michael Turnerish '90s style, you know, where all the chicks are drawn a certain way, and it just looks. I don't know. It just looks like '90s image comics to me, uh, and I'm pretty sure Peter Milligan didn't pick his artist. Yeah, Red Lanterns was pretty silly concept. It was about the emotional <laughs> rage spectrum of lanterns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when they would get mad, they would vomit blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's what they yeah, did, Albert. <laughs> I know. I, 
<laughs> I guess that was a... I, like, I don't even know... Yeah, okay, I have nothing to say. I will say this, though. <laughs> the, the, the other thing that was a bad look for the New 52 that I think is worth mentioning, and this is, um, this is a little bit of, like, palace intrigue sort of stuff, but um, the news that was coming out of the people that were working at on the New 52 yeah. at the time, like, there was... Yeah. It was all yeah, bad. Yeah, it was really bad. There was... There was a string of weeks, if not months, where like you would have these high-profile names just suddenly leaving books, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like they were, and they weren't just leaving it quietly, but they were, you know, like talking smack about people on Twitter as they were getting kicked out the door. Yeah. You know, it was like people, people not getting along with editors or creative teams not getting along with the other members of their team and. And just like all sorts of disarray. Like I remember uh, Static. Uh, they they actually tried to do a Static series, and the creative team on that didn't get along. And that pretty much killed the yeah. book. Uh, it might have happened on Zombie as well. I forget. And then there was also uh, Rob Liefeld. I I don't think he got fired. I think he quit because he didn't like his editor, and he posted a bunch of stuff on Twitter attacking his editor yeah. so it was like granted that probably says something about his character as well but that's not really the kind of uh thing you want to happen yeah. you know like you don't want all these people just quitting your books or getting fired left and right just the constant turnover it really doesn't allow anyone to tell good yeah. work you know I'm, I'm not and i'm not saying that if they had just let Rob Liefeld do what he wanted. He would have made good comics. <laughs> but that's just an example, man. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that if you want people to make good comics, you got to let them make yeah, comics. Yeah. First of all, like if, if they can't, if they can't even be creative and do the job that, They've been hired why to are do. They there? What do you expect yeah. from them? Why are they yeah, there? exactly. Why did Why did they get hired in yeah. the first place? If you're not gonna let them do what they want to yeah. do, like what What is the point of that? It felt like a lot of the news on the on on the ground was that a lot of the like the the thing that I would hear consistently was that people weren't happy with the fact that they. They, there were things that they weren't allowed to do, right? And to some degree, mm -hmm. I understand that that's editorial's job is to, to tell you, like, their their job is to, I, I guess, to put it in a diplomatic way, to guide you to, uh, in the best of worlds, their job is to guide you and provide, to yeah, success. guide you to success, right? But what these guys were doing from from the looks of it was they were trying to they were, they were meddling man they were just meddling yeah well i was gonna say they were trying to there was a house like style or a ethos that they were trying to maintain and they were like maintaining it to to the detriment of the writers right is essentially what they were doing so it, and the okay, artists yeah, and, the artist. and so it wasn't it wasn't even like it wasn't even credible editorial um, 
I mean, from the sounds of it, it didn't sound like it was credible editorial uh, recommendations, but it was like, I don't think Batman should be doing that because, you know, in such and such issue, uh, we, we, or is something like, we need to make sure that he maintains this look or whatever, you know, just, it was just really like, yeah, like, kind of stuff. <laughs> I remember, uh, I think that's why George Perez quit his Superman yeah, book. I think so too. Because, because, uh, you know, Grant Morrison was doing stuff that was set in the past, and then the editors didn't want George Perez to do anything that might contradict something that Grant Morrison might do. And, you know, he just got, he just felt so hamstrung, I think, that he ended yeah. up quitting. And, and uh, yeah, again, I'm not going to say that if he had been able to do everything he wanted, that would have made it successful or even good. But it just, again, just shows how much the editors influenced the the line in general it's chaotic i think we can look back yeah i think we can look back at the new 52 as the point where comics officially moved into the editorial driven era you know because the we could say clearly the 90s were artist driven with image comics and 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 the or the founding of image comics and just the 90s in general that was clearly an artist driven era of comics where the artists were the ones who were driving sales and interest in in the books and then it wasn't until the 2000s when it became all of a sudden a writer driven era when you had people like bendis or even jeff johns i guess um but they were the ones whose names were driving interest and and hype and sales then all of a sudden with the new 52 it's almost like it doesn't matter who's making the comics anymore, you know? Like they were having books coming out where in the in the first arc some of these books had like three or four different artists, you know? So they were clearly just pumping yeah. them out. Yeah. You got to do 52 comics. So if we don't have 52 good artists, you know, we just got to find whoever we can find and and pump out material that we yeah. can print, you know? It almost feels okay. that it doesn't make for good yeah. comics. I was going to say, it almost feels like a lot of the times they were just hiring these people for their names, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. They're, like, on the hope that their names alone would sell the books and it didn't matter what they were writing. It wouldn't surprise me if that was, <laughs> like, the underlying uh, thought process behind behind their editorial staff, which was like, well, what you're right doesn't matter. Like, we've already paid you for what we need you for, which is your name brings... Uh, the you know the tension of fans to these books. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that I guess I will give credit to the New Fifty Two is that it did reinvigorate the comics industry. Purely from a sales standpoint, as well as driving more customers into stores yeah like like that's something that can't really be be disputed i don't think because when the new 52 came out that instantly lifted dc's sales like they were getting their butts kicked by marvel for quite some time and then all of a sudden they would have like eight of the top 10 books yeah so 
that that definitely helped and if you look at the numbers i don't have them in front of me or anything but i believe that if you look at the sales numbers you can see that there are more people buying those comics than in quite some time and it really did uh jolt the direct market because if there are more people going into comic book stores for the new 52 comics it gives them a chance to look at the other comics in the store and that helps in the long run that that helps everybody you know mm, totally because i think it was only just a few months after the new 52 that saga came out and then you know that that became a phenomenon yeah. well so i wonder i wonder how many people discovered saga because they were going to a comic book store looking for new 52 comics that's a heck of a thought that something as good as saga attributes any of its popularity to something so tragic <laughs> <laughs> it's it's solely a numbers game though yeah. like the just the 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 foot traffic yeah. you know like the the number of of people that that go into stores for the first time that that previously didn't go uh to comic book stores but started to because of the new 52 yeah. i mean there there is also a counter argument that that model of sales or or that that success ultimately uh snowballed into kind of the crisis of comics that we have today <laughs> you know just well yeah it it wasn't sustainable it was a short term jolt yeah. And but it it DC is still getting their butts kicked by Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. And and like what we ended up seeing was just a constant like. Just con- I I mean we've talked about this before on another podcast, but like the need to constantly have new number ones and these events to like boost sales. Like yeah that one could argue that they took lessons away from something like the new 52 and decided to apply those lessons to, to their comics moving forward. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. I mean, Marvel, Marvel does it all the time now. That's their, they, they're even, they're even worse than DC when it comes to, to doing new number ones. They're constantly doing that. Books just don't have the chance to run their course. Like, even though it's the same writer, uh on a particular book for you know like thor by jason aaron for example right it's yeah how many number ones did thor have it had at least three or four four or five yeah maybe four or five exactly so it's it's ridiculous man it's ridiculous yeah and and then they changed the numbering to to match the legacy numbering and it you know stuff like that just gets confusing man like we're deep into comics you and i are deep into comics so we we know how to yeah. navigate stuff but but even for us it, it can still be confusing you know when you're looking at something you don't want to have to when you're looking at a bunch of trades you don't want to have to constantly open them up to, to look at what year they were printed just so you can figure out what order to put yeah. them in you know yeah, yeah. absolutely right and like and this is this is maybe a little um not uh, not less important but i mean this okay this this is something that 
they, you know, being the publishers, would care about less. But me and you, we dig through the through like a bunch of quarter boxes and uh, back issues. We're constantly, uh, you know, digging mm-hmm. for these old comics to put sets together or whatever. And yeah, you know, it sucks thinking that you have it all, and then only to find out that uh, you know there's a couple <laughs> of issues missing because there was a period of time where their numbering changed or you know they there was a subtle change in the title from all new all different to all new or new superman or something like that as opposed to (laughs) all new superman you know and not realizing that there's a difference in these things like again me and you we're we've done this this ain't our first rodeo so we know what like what to expect but I can imagine if I was new to comics and I went in there, I'd be just frustrated, dude. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I I guess that brings me to another element of the New 52, which is that it, through a lot of anecdotal uh, stories, it does sound like the New 52 did end up being a jumping on point for new readers. Like, I go back to to Ray, and he's he's someone who got into comics because of the New Fifty Two. Before that, he didn't really buy comics, and then all of a sudden, he bought fifty two issues of it. And I I actually asked him, out of those fifty two first issues, how many did you did you buy issue two? And he said uh, maybe a little bit more than half, but it just kept dwindling as things went mm-hmm. along. And uh, after a while, he was only buying like the ones that that he mentioned were like Justice League, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, uh, and, you know, the other Morrison and Jeff John stuff and the Scott Snyder mm. stuff. Well, that's still, but like, that's still yeah. kind of a lot. Like, it was still, it's still pretty su- substantial, yeah, yeah. but it's not 52, it's not 52, you know? Like, I don't think 52 is really sustainable. Like, no, there's nobody out there except somebody who has, like, a ton of disposable income who's going to buy that many bad comics Every single yeah. month. Yeah. Like you have to enjoy looking for ways to waste yeah. your money if you if you're gonna buy all yeah. those. <laughs> it's yeah, you said it yourself, it's not sustainable, right? It's they're casting a pretty wide net in the hopes that uh different niches will be satisfied, people who are looking for different things, but Yeah. There's a lot more there's a lot of not good stuff in there, you know? Um Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, I think about like Doctor Fate. The cover was great for those and the art was cool, but Paul Levitz's writing it did not it probably wasn't I'll tell you this. As someone who didn't grow up with Paul Levitz, who who didn't read Paul Levitz comics as like as they were coming out, um, mm-hmm. I'm probably not his demographic, but I will say that reading those Doctor Fate comics, uh, all these years after he's been past his prime, uh, it it did not uh, it did not instill in me in a, a lot of confidence in my ability to enjoy his work. <laughs> What, so you, are you saying that you're not going to go back and read his Legion of Superheroes from the 70s I'm or good. 80s? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm super good. 
And before we were uh, gonna do, before we recorded this episode, I, I showed you that uh, that one link where I was looking on the DC forums, their message yeah. boards, um, where people were talking. Uh, and this was like from earlier this year, I think, from 2020. So it was like people this year reflecting back on the new 52. Because yeah. um, I just, I was just curious to see, like, generally speaking, like, what did people think? What do people think? What do people today think of the new 52? And yeah, based on just online threads and, and forums, it does seem like there are people who got into comics because of the new 52. Mm. So, you know, I guess you do have to give DC credit for having an effective marketing scheme that actually drew people in to the point where even today they're still interested in and buying uh, comic books. Well, but then I have to ask, right? That okay, if if that is the case, that they drew all these new people in, and you know these message boards are um, representative yeah. of the yeah, population, exactly. are representative of the population. Then why is it that their numbers are aren't like? Presuming that there are old fans as well as this new fan base that are coming to comic, why is it that their numbers aren't anywhere near as high as we would expect them to be? Uh, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I, I can't say that. Where are they losing their customership or an answer? Yeah, I mean. For all the talk about the New 52 being a gateway for new readers, I think there's also, well, I don't even know if I really found too much anecdotal evidence of this, but I guess you could make the case that it, it was also a jumping off point for people yeah. too. I think, I think the diehard comic fans, and, and when I say diehard comic fans, I... I I don't know if you you personally consider you know like the mouth breathers this, but they're diehard in the sense that they will buy anything and everything, you yeah, know, without yeah. any real thought of quality or yeah. what it is that they like. They they don't even know what's good or bad, man. They just buy it because it's yeah. comics. Yeah, but or because they think it's going to be a key issue. Yeah, Ugh, yeah. I hate that term, by the way. Well, it's kind of like uh, Milestone Comics meets um, CGC grading. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, boy. You've turned into what you hate, Albert. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, what was what were we just talking about? What did I just say? Um, I, I was. We were just talking about mouth breathers oh, okay, buying okay. all sorts of junk. Yeah, so I like so okay. If you look at comics fans as a spectrum, as you know, from like the casual uh, comic fan to the like I, I really want to make a de distinction between like a dedicated comic fan and a mouth breather 
because, like, me and you, we're dedicated comic fans. Yeah, we're, we're readers. readers. But we ain't mouth breathers. Exactly. I like showering too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, uh, I think if I had to guess, based on what we've discussed here, I, yeah, I, I would say that the likelihood is they lost maybe the 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 middle ground, right? That that would be the one that makes sense, right? The the kind of fan mm-hmm. who would who who has a very like simple love for the comics that they love, but because of the price of comics and because of the complication of it all, just you know, either got bored of the entire uh, rigmarole of it all and decided to move on to something else or just got frustrated and was like done with it right yeah um, yeah I, like me and you talk about this quite a bit but you know even we had the a period in our lives where we stepped away from comics you know yeah that's and, true that's and it true. didn't and i'm sure that things the things that they were doing didn't make it easier or I'm sure the things that they were doing, in fact, made it easier for a lot of people to step away from comics. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. So maybe they did bring some new people in, but <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Like, I, it's still a mystery to me. It's something that I, I ponder. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to possibly analyze or measure that. So it's, it's really hard to say. The other thing that I kind of noticed from uh, looking at forums and Reddit is uh seems like there could be a decent amount of people that became comic book readers because of the New 52 who are younger people, you know, like kids that grew up in that era. And the New 52 was the first time that they felt like they could, uh, you know, get in on the ground floor of these, you know, famous or iconic characters and series. Mm. Because I think for a lot of civilians mm. who don't read comics normally, sometimes they might think that it's too much work to read something as simple as Superman or Batman because they're on issue 1000 or something, you know? Like Detective Comics issue th- 1000 came out last year. How are you going to get into a comic book series when it's already on issue 1,000 something? Are you going to read all 1,000 mm-hmm. issues? No. So it's better just not to read it. But they don't realize that that's not how people read comics. You don't start from the very first yeah. issue and just like, you know. So I, I don't really understand that mentality. But I know that there are people who actually do think like that. People who think that it's too hard to get into something because there's too much to read to catch up. So the fact that there's this, there was this uh, complete reboot where everything, the continuity was reset and everything starts at a new number one, that actually makes it more appealing to the new person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's something I can't relate to and it's something I strongly disagree with. Yeah. And if I, if I know people like that, I would, I would definitely do my best to use reason and logic to persuade them to change their mentality. Yeah. Like we, we had this discussion online before, uh, 
reaching this subject, but you know, um, we were talking about uh, we were talking about yeah, we were we were basically talking about the same thing, just about how um, how as as someone who reads comics, like I. I feel like maybe this is, you know, an indicator of just how much optimism I have for people, which is really weird because we're constantly talking about how little faith that I have in people. (laughs) But I just want to be like, just, just tell the good, just tell a good story and, you know, don't, they shouldn't be overthinking um all of these logistical storytelling things right like you mm-hmm. know if if they do a good job of presentation and if they do a good job of uh telling the story that they intend to tell like the merits of the work in and of itself should be enough to uh draw people in but yeah but they feel the need to use gimmicks essentially to to get eyes on their books and it's just i don't know man and and i i will say that the other thing that we discussed was it's a matter of taste too because you know you showed me that same thread and i was looking at some of the things that uh these people uh these new fans were um like mm-hmm. you know they were looking back saying, in fondness on, stuff right? you were saying and yeah I, you know, I, these were things that I had, some of them that I recognized, and I can't honestly say that I felt that same level of love or appreciation for those works. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I'm willing to entertain that it's, it, this could be a case of me being an old man at this point who looks back at comics and says, well, only the comics that I like from my certain age and from a particular point in time are good, you know, because these young whippersnappers, they don't know nothing. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but I know that's not true because we mock the comics that we grew up with all the time. Exactly. We grew up in the 90s and we look at all these bad 90s comics and laugh at them and, and we laugh at ourselves for liking them yeah, when we were kids. Exactly. And in addition to that, my, my like other argument is there are new creative teams and new writers that come out, you know, uh, all the time. And we have enough of an open mind to read the, those works. And I can say that me and you have a healthy respect for quite a few of the newer writers that are out now, you know? Who, like Donny Cates? Uh, Donny Cates is actually an example of, like, I'm not going to say that we liked everything that he's done, but, you know, he's he's certainly capable of high heights. I think he's he's a name that I, I enjoy. Al Ewing is someone I like. Um, Mark Russell. Uh, Ailes Cott. You know, they're... Tom, Tom King. King. Tom, Tom Taylor. King, uh, I, I, I'm still... <laughs> I, I, I'm still on the fence on Tom Taylor. Maybe you're going to have to convince me on Tom Taylor. Like, or I definitely have to read more Tom Taylor stuff just to see for sure. So, 
there we go. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's anything I can do to convince you Tom Taylor is good because I'd I'd have to convince yourself. I'd have to read more of his okay. stuff too. Like I I think right now he's definitely one of the biggest stars in 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 comics. Uh, but as far as things from him that I've read that I liked, the, the one thing that stands out to me is probably his Star Wars comics for Dark Horse. Like, this was, like, super early in his career. Like, they might have been his first comics, mm. maybe. But it was it was before he was doing stuff for Marvel. But he did a couple of uh, Dark Horse Star Wars miniseries called uh, Invasion that were kind of related to some of the old Expanded Universe uh, novels. So it was, like, the old continuity before, before Disney bought right, it up. Right. But, but uh... Yeah, I remember enjoying his Star Wars comics for Dark Horse, and I feel like the other stuff he's written since then, like it, it gets a lot of attention, and and people seem to generally like his work. But so far, I'm still trying to find something that'll resonate with yeah. me, you know? Because something that you can point because to. Injustice definitely isn't it. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, man, it's uh you think it's a case of uh just young people liking stuff that resonates with them and we're just too different from them and that's why it doesn't resonate with us? Well, that's the thing that I was saying. Like there that Look, I'll entertain that that could be the case that you know, um, as we get older, we become less relevant, and uh, maybe, maybe the world doesn't cater to our tastes anymore because mm-hmm. you know we're becoming obsolete, whatever. But yeah, uh, you know what I yeah what I told you was, you know, young people like Jake Paul. I don't get it, but. <laughs> so so I can look at that and I can go maybe maybe it's me for not getting it but there's definitely a part of me that looks at it and goes there's definitely something wrong with them that they are enjoying this yeah too. you know yeah yeah if anybody who enjoys Jake Paul or uh, what's that other Paul Logan yeah like anybody who enjoys them I question everything yeah. That they enjoy, you know. It's like how can, how can anyone like stuff like that? And yet, those, uh, I don't even know what to call them. Those YouTube people are <laughs> just—they have so many followers and fans, yeah. and it's just ridiculous. To, like that—that's the thing that makes me lose faith in humanity, <laughs> Albert. When I look at people like Jake Paul or Logan Paul, and I see how big and rabid their fan base is that that definitely disheartens me for the future of our world yeah i mean so it it reminds me of like another anecdote but a few years or not a few years it's it's been a long time now but um <laughs> it reminds me of when uh, conan o'brien took over uh the tonight show after jay leno and oh yeah so he 
he I don't think he even had a full year as the host of the Tonight Show. But I remember they they were doing focus groups and um basically the thing about Conan O'Brien was that his ratings were nowhere near as good as Jay Leno's and he was just trying to figure out why he wasn't um why he wasn't resonating with these uh, with with the Tonight Show fans, right? And yeah, the focus group it wasn't a real focus group. It was really more of a jokey focus group. It was just him like okay. antics. But one of the things that he was finding out was that you know, a lot of the fans of the Tonight Show, especially like Jay Leno's fans, you know, his base were they were older folks and they just didn't get Conan O'Brien. They didn't understand what like the humor of Conan O'Brien, the absurdity of it. Oh, yeah. But, uh-huh. you know, that which is to me to me like I don't get what they're not getting because like Conan O'Brien to me is like hilarious, you know? So, yeah, compared to Jay Leno. Well, compared to Jay, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> even even on his own merits, I think he's hilarious. I think he's super funny. Right. So I don't. I don't need him to. I don't need to compare him to Jay Leno to know that he's funny. But, um, yeah. But that's just like a moment where, like, maybe he's one of my. He's one of the icons of my generation or my age group, my demographic, whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh. And so he's. Yeah, like, it's just that weird generational dissonance, I guess. So, but but I'd still like to think that Conan O'Brien makes sense and Jake Paul and Logan Paul are just idiots, <laughs> you know? Dude, what if one day they end up having a late night show? Oh, uh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. But at the same time, I don't think they need to have... I'm sure they're in a position where they don't need to have a late night show. That that entire model of entertainment is like yeah, it's yeah, fading it's pretty out. obsolete. They've already shown that they don't need that they can do whatever they do on YouTube, uh, and they for the most part have all the creative control that they need and want. Like sure. You consider them creative? Uh, that not really, but I'm just saying. I just in terms of. <laughs> <laughs> I was just catching you in the technical aspect. Right, right. <laughs> I don't consider them creative, but you know, they may consider what they do, uh, what what liberties or freedoms that they have to do on their show. They may consider those creative liberties, so. In that regard, I'm will I'm talking about it in those terms, but yeah. So I don't know, man. Like I, I isn't one of them gonna box Nate Robinson? I think so. Which which one is it? I forget, man. I can't tell them apart. I don't want to know about them enough. Like if one of them ends up fighting Nate Robinson and he ends up getting pummeled to within an inch of his uh, life. Like, I'll watch that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see Nate Robinson mess him up, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I I will say this, not, not to, like, deter from our, like, overall topic, but I will say that 
the big difference to me about Conan O'Brien from like these two idiots is like Conan O'Brien has never been a jerk, <laughs> and these two, yeah. like they might do absurd things, but they're willing to do things that are just rude to other people, disrespectful, disrespectful. to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. there's no need for that. And I, like, I'm not. They 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 harm people with their actions. Yeah. yeah. Like some people might look at that, and they might look at that as like the natural uh, evolution of comedy, which is you know the realest of real things, right? Like, you know, um, I I I I can't agree with that. I I just can't. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, how a few years ago there was a thing that was going viral where young people were doing, they were recording videos of themselves running up. And punching old people in the back of the head when they weren't expecting it. Yeah, that's it, not cool. You know? Like, yeah. Like, like people, like, a lot of kids online thought that was funny. And that stuff, that kind of behavior just went widespread. Yeah. And it's just dumb. And that, again, that's another one of those things that that uh, causes me to lose faith in humanity. Yeah. Like, if, look, if you're going to do something stupid, then... By all means, do it, but keep it to yourself, or like, make sure that the only person that is harmed punch the back of your own head. Yeah, make sure that the only person that gets harmed is you. You know, but yeah, it, it's that whole thing where you know the it, it feels like the current iteration of comedy is that what makes it funny is the authenticity of it, right? So. Mm-hmm. So by doing this to some unsuspecting person, that's the like purest form of authenticity, because an observer watching from a third person perspective can, you know, can so called enjoy that for the entertainment because it's real, right? Like the cringe factor of it mm-hmm. is real, but yeah, but. You know, you have to understand, this is happening to someone who doesn't want to take part in it. So, like, what's wrong yeah. with you? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, if, if it means that I can only enjoy comedy as long as everyone is, like, in on the act and it's not real, then I'm fine with that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Or, or even in those occasions where Conan O'Brien, like, does, like, a weird bit where he makes it uncomfortable for an unsuspecting person. Like, it's not hurting them. It might be awkward, but, you know. He's not punching them in the back of yeah, the head. exactly. Exactly. So, so to bring it back to <laughs> the New 52... I guess we can say that reading Red Hood and the Outlaws was like getting punched <laughs> in the back of the head by Scott Lobdell. You know, part of the, the the reason I went on that rant was I saw in your notes rag on Jake Paul, so I just <laughs> <laughs> so I, it was in my subconscious to rag on Jake Paul. So when when I found a way to like put that in there, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go ham on this guy. We gotta talk about yeah. it. <laughs> 
You you did not let thank me down, you, Albert. You. you did not let me down. <laughs> so, did anything good come out of the new Fifty Two? I th- so so we've already mentioned that it probably did bring new readers in, and it did boost sales and help the industry overall. Like, like you could look at the numbers from that era, and and like. Yeah, DC sales rocketed up and and they were dominating that month. But for like the next several months, like all comics numbers, like Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, every publisher, they were, you know, all their sales were increasing all around the board. But other than other than the sales aspect, which is, I think, for our concerns, usually secondary, like because we care more about the quality of the comics. Did anything good come out of the New Fifty Two? There were a couple of titles here and there that I think were, um, yeah, they were hidden gems and like some were like outright good. So I, I would say, you know, I'm glad that we got those titles. Uh, but overall it's hard for me to look at, uh, the new 52 as, a positive force for good in comics. Like what okay, so before I go into the titles that we did like, I will say that you know, five years after the new fifty two happened, I think it was about five years, they had to yeah. do rebirth, which was another like event on I guess it was more of a soft reboot. Yeah, but it was a similar event in terms of scale in the sense that it was trying to Yeah, it was trying to soft reboot and soft undo the things that had been done because of the new 52. And I think that in and of itself is an admission tacitly, but an admission that it didn't work, you know, that something needed fixing. Yeah. 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 And and the fact that, you know, so we had crisis on infinite earths and then we had zero hour and then we had, um, uh, uh, the new 52, right? Don't forget uh, Infinite Crisis. And, was Infinite Crisis one of their crisis moments? Okay. Yeah, it has the word crisis okay. in the title. I just wanted to be sure. That That's the one where Superboy Prime punched the walls of reality. Uh, oh, that's how they fixed reality. Or that's what explains the discrepancies of reality. You know, that's how Jason Todd came back yeah. to life. Okay. Yeah, so... And then don't forget Final Crisis, which was supposed to be the final crisis. Yeah, I mean, even so, like it felt like the the primary ones were few and far between at that point. But like to go from New Fifty Two to Rebirth in five years, that was quick. That 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 was pretty quick, even by their standards, wasn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I'd say so. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like so, I, I I can't say that there are a lot of good things that came out of it. We we got a few good titles. Oh, actually, before we go into the good things, I just I, I just remembered some of the bad, some more bad sure, comics. Sure. Like one, I remember uh, one of the things about the New Fifty Two that was pretty. Uh, highlighted especially in the first several months was the cheesecake art in a lot of their books Mm. like there was a 
good amount of controversy over uh, some of the titles. Like, I remember in Teen Titans, I think, I want to say it was another 90s dude who was drawing it, like Brett Booth or somebody. But I remember it was Teen Titans, right? And and Starfire was on the team. and, And he drew her like, uh, you know, like one of those 90s bad girl comics, like you know, pin-up. like just like a pinup girl, gigantic boobs and and her her uh, skin hanging out everywhere. And it's supposed to be, uh, I mean, I think it was Teen Titans. So I think she was supposed to be a teen, but I'm not yeah. sure. It was just weird, man. Yeah. It's like, why would you, why would you draw her like that? You know, I mean, even... In the old comics, like the George Perez stuff from the eighties, yeah, I get it. She she was buxom and she had a she was basically wearing like a swimsuit, but it still looked more tasteful than what he was drawing for the New Fifty Two, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then there was also that uh, run on Catwoman. I think it was Judd Winnick who was writing it, and the artist I want to say it was Gilla March, but there was a a scene in one of the early issues where Batman and Catwoman are basically dry humping, you know, like they're having, they're basically having sex with their costumes on. And it was just weird. Do you remember I that? Don't. This is the first time hearing of it from you. Oh man. Like th- those are, those are some of the things where I think back to that era and it's like, dude, what, why did they, why did they do stuff like that? You know, like that was, that was just so dumb. I'm sure it was part of their, super dumb. um, part of their drive to pull new readers in right so they were they were using every lever at their disposal which includes uh <laughs> salacious sex cells yeah. i guess yeah totally. yeah so yeah that if i had to guess that's what that was all about um yeah it was pretty bad yeah do you, uh yeah so in terms of the good stuff though uh the the one title that we often reference on this podcast is uh Wonder Woman by Cliff Chang and Brian Azzarello. That's yep. and also uh, a couple of other artists like Tony Akins and the man Garan Suzuka. Nice, nice, totally. Our homeboy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean that's I think that's probably head above shoulders like taller yeah. better than anything that ever came out of the new 52 indubitably yeah. like it, yeah that that's the one absolute genuine classic from the entire line yeah. yeah like not just the initial 52 comics but like that entire like five year stretch you know that was clearly the best comic that they did during that time uh in terms of just their straight up superhero line mm-hmm. There's there is nothing better than the Brian Azzarello, Cliff Chang, Garan Suzuka, Wonder Woman. So, if you guys haven't read that, that's the one to to seek out. It's it's the one thing that I would say is something you gotta read from the New Fifty Two. Yeah. It's a reimagining of Wonder Woman. It doesn't it doesn't uh, tie into any of the new continuity bullcrap. It's just a reimagined story about wonder woman everything you need to know about her new origin is in this story it 
it's not related to, to anything. So you can just go in cold, not knowing anything yeah. and just read a, an amazing tale about essentially it's, it's wonder woman with the Greek God pantheon as mafia bosses. Yeah. It's, it's almost kind of like a, a story about crime, except it's not really uh, like drug dealing or things like that, but it's just people playing with like, it's, it's God's playing with, with people's fates, yeah, yeah. you know, like that's, that's their currency. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. It's, it's, um, and yeah, I remember the, when I was reading it, one of the things that struck me was, I think for me, for, for me, for the longest time, Wonder Woman was a character that was hard to get into because from a superhero's perspective, I never thought that her rogues gallery was, uh, anything that I had particular interest in. You know, what you had no love for Silver Swan. I didn't have love for Silver Swan. I didn't have any particular love for Cheetah. Uh, what about Egg Foo, man? Egg Foo, Poison. Uh, 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 wasn't there like a Doctor Psycho or something like that? Yeah, I was gonna say Doctor yeah, Psycho. Like, like they, those weren't. She just Giganta. Giganta. Like her villains were <laughs> like they just did not do anything for me, and. What they did with um, Wonder Woman in the Azarello run was, well, she's she's based on a Greek, or or the root of her backstory is Greek by nature, so Greek, Greek mythology. mythology by nature. So they just took a bunch of the existing uh, gods and goddesses from Greek mythology, and applied it to her as her rogues gallery as her antagonist and mm-hmm. that was like perfect you know yeah so good it stands on its own you'll if you if you read it you get a satisfying ending too so totally totally yeah seek that yeah. one out i think it was uh like 30 the first 36 issues of that run also collected i think in six trade paperbacks and it's also in two absolute editions. Other than that, though, it's a pretty far drop off in terms of quality. I would say, like, there were some other titles that that I enjoyed. Yeah, nothing I enjoyed nearly as much as Wonder Woman. Like, nothing that I would say is a classic, you know. But there were some other solid ones. Like another one that stands out, and this one wasn't one of the initial fifty-two, but it was a couple years down the line. But there was a, a series called Gotham by Midnight. I think that one only lasted maybe 12 or 15 issues or so. So it wasn't too long. But Gotham by Midnight was uh, written by Ray Fox and drawn by, I think the first artist was Ben Templesmith. And and then I think it might have been Juan Ferreira. Uh, I forget. But th- that was a good series about, uh, it's basically a Spectre comic. Like Jim Corrigan, uh, as a as a Gotham detective investigating supernatural crimes. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I'd I'd recommend that. It's it's not essential, and I think the beginning is better than the ending. But it's it's definitely something worth reading. Okay. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's a that's a hidden gem, man. Because I don't think too many people were were looking at that comic. Yeah. I never heard anyone talk about it. Um, yeah, like in terms of 
so this was something that we had mentioned earlier in the podcast. Uh, but for me, uh, like, oddly enough, the Constantine comic of that era was something that su- that pleasantly surprised me. Um, so I remember I, I ended up finding this one, one shot uh, where Constantine takes on Dr. Fate. And, uh, yeah, I, I saw it in a quarter bin. I picked it up for a quarter. I read it on its own. And it really was, I like, so we mentioned earlier how, like, uh, DC Comics had done all this stuff to the character of Constantine to water him down and, you know, make him accessible to the, to, to your average comic book fan. But... Mm-hmm. I will say that in spite of the superficial changes, the the way that Ray Fox wrote him um, in that one issue was, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty well done, you know, because it still portrayed him as a trickster who was taking on beings outside of his, you know, his power scale or his power range, right? So what I ended up doing was I remember finding some other issues uh, and it turns out that the issues that I found was, it might've been like the last six issues of the series before it got canceled. But I ended up finding those six issues or so in a quarter bin and I ended up buying them as well. So I checked those out and I have to say like, I, I wasn't clamoring for a Constantine story where he was fully engaged in like some of the it was fully engaged in the the antics of the mainstream dc universe yeah. uh, but what what i did read was still entertaining enough where i was like you know what okay i i didn't ask for this but i still enjoyed what i read so uh yeah, so this version of Constantine was uh, has Robert Vendetti, Jeff Lemire, Ray Fox on it, uh, all all great writers, and the artists include Bernardo Guedes and Jeremy Juan. Um, the one thing that I that I can mention about the end of it that really struck me was basically. I'm just gonna spoil it because it was it was something that I thought was clever, mm-hmm. but at the end of it, it's revealed that Constantine is actually taking on Darkseid, which wasn't <laughs> something that I wanted. Again, like I said, but the way that they portrayed Darkseid, it wasn't a superhero battle that he was having with him, because the way that they portrayed Darkseid was he was just this massive this massive godlike entity that that w- didn't even know that wouldn't have even noticed Constantine at all and the story was really about him circumventing uh Darkseid in spite of the fact that he was beneath his notice essentially yeah so yeah. i i thought that was a clever way to do it because if they you know if they had had this you know face off between Constantine and Darkseid where you know he he's like saying by the eyes of Agamotto I like beseech thee or, hey that's marvel dude I know I'm just you know saying for an example 
by the hoary host of yeah, Hoggus. If, if they had like some battle like that where he has like you know some explosive multi-dimensional you know blockbuster battle where skyscrapers are falling or whatever um i i feel like that would not be Hellblazer. that would not be hellblazer that would not be constantine because that i i feel like i think when they talked about or when they mentioned that they were moving constantine to the to the mainstream dc dc universe that was what i thought that that was initially what i thought it was going to be and for them not to do that i i was like okay like it's essentially him taking on dark side without directly confronting dark side and i was Mm -hmm. like okay all right you know that i i give you a little bit of credit for that (laughs) that's good yeah that's good what else you got drew another uh, another decent comic from the new 52 was gotham academy yeah like that that's the series that wasn't one of the initial launch titles but uh i think it was uh brendan fletcher and i think becky clunan co-writing with uh carl kershaw artwork i never read the whole thing uh but the few issues i did read were pretty promising it's basically a, a story about a uh, a girls' academy in Gotham City, and they just go on these simple little adventures. Um, I know Zach. That's something that Zach enjoys. He's he's he owns more of it, and he's probably read more of it than I have. But uh, yeah, at the very least, based on the art and what little I have read of it, it's something that I enjoy and appreciate more than uh, almost any, anything else that they did. Um, another title that I have was so this was something that was actually started in prior to the shift to the new 52 uh, but this was Justice League 3000 and then it became Justice League 3001 uh, at a later point so Justice League 3000 came out before the new 52? I, I believe so so I think when it oh. became the new 52 it they uh they had already done i think it was more than 12 issues i think it might have been like at 17 issues at that point either 17 or it might have been 12 on the dot i forget but um yeah justice league 3000 was i'm pretty sure it was out before the new 52 and then you know while they were doing that series the yeah, the new 52 happened and as a result they changed it to Justice League 3001. So the mm-hmm. interesting thing about this is it's a story that takes place in the future of the DC universe. So it's it's not the version of the Justice League that we know, it's the version of the Justice League in the year 3000 in the year 3001. Yeah. You know, for the title. So in a lot of ways it really wasn't affected by the new 52 at all <laughs> you know because they had the luxury of being in the future so yeah um yeah and this was something that was written by jam Mateus and it was drawn by howard porter uh keith giffen also right yeah i think keith giffen was on it too so yeah jam Mateus is someone you know it, it's a name that we frequently tout on this podcast so uh 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's a pretty fun story. I, I, I haven't read J.M. DeMatteis's and Keith Giffen's like Justice League international stuff, but I do think tonally, from what I saw, it's it's similar to that, which which would make sense. It's it's like a sitcom. Yeah, I mean, it's still there are still adventure elements to it, but they're they're definitely com- uh, a lot more comedic bits than I was expecting. Nice. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> what else you got? Uh, we already briefly mentioned uh, Grant Morrison's Batman earlier. I mean, again, uh, it's a, it's a run that uh, started before the New Fifty Two, and then after the New Fifty Two kicked off, he was he kind of had to conform to the ridiculous conf- uh, continuity imposed on him. But his Batman Incorporated run that that finishes off. His entire uh, story—that's some pretty powerful stuff. Um, I would probably say, it, if you read it, you have to start from the beginning of Morrison's run. Um, but I do like that Chris Burnham drew it. He's kind of wish that Burnham had drawn his Batman run from the beginning. Yeah. You know, like it. His art's really good, and the. The number of artists that Grant Morrison got saddled with was a lot, and not all of them were good artists. Yeah. So it was nice to see that at the end of the run, uh, there was some artistic stability there. Yeah. Then there was a Justice League Dark, which I mentioned earlier. Um, basically, just the first six issues. I think that might be Peter Milligan's uh, best New 52 stuff. Like, again, I I mentioned earlier, I I didn't read the entirety of his Red Lanterns or or, um, his Stormwatch, even though I own it. But uh, something tells me that his Justice League Dark is probably the best of those three titles. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a story about a version of the Justice League that Batman assembles that has a kind of mystical themed characters. So that includes Constantine and um, Zatanna and some other people. I think, I think he even, wait, or was it Shade? I can't remember if Shade was, was in there, but they, he did bring Shade into uh, the DC, his version of Shade into the DC universe as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was it wasn't anything spectacular. Like it's it's definitely not Peter Milligan's best work. Like if you've never read a Peter Milligan comic, don't start with that. Um, but compared to everything else from the New 52, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um I do want to mention some of the stuff that was popular in the New 52 that uh you know, like going back to the, you know, the the stuff that you mentioned earlier, the stuff that you uh, that that you didn't um, enjoy, <laughs> but there was mm-hmm. there's quite a yeah, I mean there was quite a few stuff that came out of the New Fifty Two that uh, I just can't find my head around, honestly. So 
Yeah. Like, one of the big ones that came out was Justice League by Geoff Johns in that era and Jim Lee. Yeah. And, uh, I remember reading that, and I thought it was bad. It was pretty bad, I'd have to say. I thought it, I thought it sucked. Yeah. It was... It was just a lot of posturing, and it wasn't even cool posturing, or, yeah. It it, it did give us that one line of dialogue that even to this day, like nine years later, <laughs> we still quote it and laugh at he it. He destroyed that my construct. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> How the hell did he do that? <laughs> I think that line should be in every Green Lantern movie. <laughs> well, yeah, so... It's Geoff Johns, again, he's their golden child, and uh, it's him doing their flagship title, the flagship comic, the, the Justice League. And Yeah, it's, it was supposed to be the origin of the Justice League. Yeah, yeah. But I just remember that, I just remember reading that comic and thinking, everybody is just posing so hard. And I don't mean like posing in the sense that you know, they were all taking different stances, physical stances. I mean, just everybody's just a poser in the comic, you know? Like, <laughs> I get it. When you do one of these ensemble comics, everyone has to have a cool moment. Everyone has to have a moment where they do something memorable that highlights what it yeah. is that just makes them special. But everybody on the mm-hmm. team was just a loser. <laughs> I just... <laughs> like just the way I, the one thing that I remember was, um, so so they start off pretty big, right? Like the Justice League, uh, the first story arc was called War, just War, right? And and it's yeah. about the Justice League taking on an invasion from Darkseid. So they're they're starting at the top tier of the top tier, right? Because Darkseid's considered the the biggest bad that there is mm-hmm. and one like his design was pretty lame to begin with or not to begin with but in in this version of of him it was just a really bad design just super gaudy and um two again like so back to my what i originally said everybody was just so this is supposed to be a younger version of the Justice League, and everybody is just somebody that I kind of hate. Some version, it's the version of them that I hate, just in terms of their personalities. Uh, everybody's just a poser. The one scene that I remember is uh, the parademons are flying out over the ocean, and uh, I, I remember Aquaman being there, and they were just kind of mocking Aquaman and saying to him, like, <laughs> What can he do? And then he uses his powers, and suddenly all these sharks jump out of the water and just like eat all the parademons. That's right. That? That's right. That was like super yeah, corny, that. dude. Super <laughs> corny. I was like, what? Uh, like, uh, like, and and this is coming from a dude who likes like these aquatic king characters. Like, I like Namor and I like Aquaman, but that was you love Namor, I love dude, Namor, man, but. That was dumb. That was dumb. It was it was silly, it was super man. Silly. It was super it was silly. Like the, it felt like the kind of thing that a little kid would think was cool. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And the funny thing is, if you compare that arc to the Grant Morrison JLA uh, that he did with Howard yeah. Porter, and the way their origin story, the way that they use their origin story to give everybody a cool, memorable moment, like when he used, when Grant Morrison and Howard Porter gave Aquaman his moment, it was way more subtle and yeah. showed his power in a way more number one it was creative yeah. and it was also something that that made you realize this guy is someone that you don't want to underestimate yeah. you know but but the thing that Johns and Jim Lee did with the sharks that was just like you said it's something that a kid would have thought yeah, of yeah <laughs> exactly so yeah i'll just i'll i'll tell him right so in the grand mm-hmm. morrison uh justice league He's fighting this guy, one of the um, hyper clan, who whose yeah. power is basically uh, he's a he's a mimic of the Flash, basically. So he's a dude with super speed, and he's up against Aquaman. And Aquaman, you know, everyone thinks he's just the fish dude. What's he gonna do to a guy who can run at the speed of light, right? Send a shark to eat him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. So, you know, he's over there and he's like he's he's vibrating his hand through bricks and just making like disintegrating them essentially and you know, he's just kind of taunting Aquaman like what are you going to do? And Aquaman starts talking about his powers, about how, you know, he has the ability to like control the minds of fish, right? And he essentially says that, "Hey, did you know that, you know, there are parts of the of 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 the brain that 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 are primitively uh, very similar to fish, like you know. Just, I'm I'm paraphrasing, right? So mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. he he basically says that there are parts of the brain that are very uh, primitively very similar to fish, like you know, they're vestiges of 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 their evolution. And I I have the power to affect those parts of the brain, and he basically gives the dude a seizure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I remember I remember how Howard Porter drew it because he like the dude starts like tweaking out, and then like you just see him on the ground, and his tongue is sticking out of his mouth, and he's just like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like that's so much better yeah. than having a bunch of sharks eat the parademons. <laughs> Come on. Did you ever, if, for those of you listening, have you ever seen uh, Total Recall, the scene at the end where Arnold goes flying out <laughs> into the Martian, uh, into the Martian uh, wasteland and, you know, he's suffocating and he's just like, ah, 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 ah. it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the Jim Lee Jeff Johns just the, was the one where they made uh, Cyborg an integral member of the team. Yeah, right? that was the first time. That was uh, maybe that was part of the basis for the Zack Snyder I'm pretty movie. Sure it was because yeah, because I I'm pretty sure they got the idea that Cyborg was actually uh, New Genesis tech. You know, his components were part of New Genesis Tech. That was the idea that came out of war. 
New Genesis or Apocalypse? Sorry, Apocalypse Tech. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and I just remember that Hal Jordan Green Lantern in the comic was just, he was just a whiny, he was like a whiny turd. Yeah, he I was. I could not stand him in that comic. He was, he was yeah. just a dude who like clearly had insecurities and was constantly going around talking about how like tough he was and whatever. And it mm-hmm. was just, I did not have like any respect for her. For their version of Green Lantern. No, yeah, not at all. I, I quit reading the Jeff Johns Green Lantern well before the New 52 was even conceived, but I wonder if that's how he was writing Hal Jordan in the Green Lantern monthly series. I hope not. I really hope not. Like, I don't know. Part of me thinks that Jeff Johns was trying to, you know... I think he was trying to do that thing where he was trying to show, oh yeah, our heroes have flaws. They're like, you know, they they're not quite as heroic or quite as noble as they're not unstoppable forces. Yeah, they're they're not these paragons that that they are, especially especially if the Justice League is supposed to be a a, a younger de-aged version of the Justice League. Um, right. Like he yeah. wanted to show them as still being, you know, full of youthful hubris and whatever. And all he did was he just made Green Lantern seem petulant and annoying. <laughs> yeah, but he made Hal Jordan seem like a, I guess, an angsty teenager or something. Yeah, like somebody who was who would be uh, rocking out to Limp Bizkit. Yeah. In order to get pumped yeah. up and it just makes me wonder like how is this guy supposed to be supposed to have one of the strongest willpowers in the universe oh <laughs> 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 uh, yeah yeah that that was not a good it comic was, no. the only other uh comic that i could think of that was enjoyable and this is another one i didn't even read the whole thing i only read like the first five or six issues but and it wasn't one of the initial 52 i don't think it was one of the initial 52 it might have i can't remember if it was but there was a comic called dial h uh this one was written by the science fiction or fantasy writer china mevo he's someone who won a hugo award and like a bunch of other awards for his novels so it was kind of surprising that he would write uh such an obscure dc property but uh dial h is based on this old dc comic dial h for hero where some dude has a like an old school uh rotary telephone yeah and every time he dials the number he transforms into a different superhero so this was a a version of that and i never read the whole thing uh and it's been so long since i read those first <laughs> few issues that i can't really remember it very right. clearly but i do remember thinking oh this was pretty enjoyable this was decent mm-hmm. i mean it was only so decent that i you know after all these years i still haven't gone back to find more of it or collect it <laughs> or anything but again it's all relative you know like well yeah. we have to be relative like if we're truly looking for positive 
uh, notes in in their in in this line of comics, this in in this particular age of comics, uh, then yeah, we're we're gonna have to everything's gonna have to be relative. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd rather read Dial H than something like uh, Resurrection Man or Green Team. I don't even remember what Green Team was. Yeah, exactly. I don't think anybody does. <laughs> was that one of their the new fifty two titles that they were just putting out there in the hopes that something would stick? Yeah, I think it was called the Green Team Team Trillionaires. I have no idea what it's about, but that's just one of those titles that we always see in those junk bins when people are trying to sell all the stuff that they couldn't sell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, another title that I wanted to bring up real quick, uh, and we talk about this one a lot, but I really feel like it's hard to talk about the new 52 without talking about it, um, which would be like the the Batman and the Scott Snyder, uh, you know, the Scott Snyder Batman is basically what, yeah. what I feel, it, it, I feel like we have to mention it because I think yeah for, most people talk about that one when they talk about the new 52 like they yeah. they they regard that one as the classic of the new 52 exactly. whereas we regard wonder exactly. woman exactly and for us not to mention it like I I feel like I feel like you can't talk about the new 52 without talking about it you know good or bad yeah yeah, uh, yeah. that's yeah. fair and in our case I I have to say we're well, I won't speak for Drew, but to me, uh, that was not a good version of Batman. <laughs> yeah, I I agree with yeah. that. I stand yeah. by that. That wasn't good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we. I mean, we. That's something that we've discussed. Uh, like, it's kind of a recurring thing. Anytime we start <laughs> talking about the Scott Snyder Batman, we end up going on these long rants. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think. I think we did go into pretty good detail a few episodes ago when we were talking about our evergreen Batman stories yeah. and we talked about why that was not worthy of our designation. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially, I just don't think that the writing in that series was strong enough to really, number one, cap it didn't really captivate me. And then secondly, I thought a lot of it was pretty lame just in terms of how some of the ideas they might have seemed cool in some way but to me they weren't really what i want to see in a batman story at all yeah. and they just fell flat like i like i think about uh jim gordon having uh, a robot suit <laughs> like that it's not really something I care to see in a Batman comic, you know? Like, I guess some people out there think that's cool or entertaining, but... Um, it's a little too ridiculous for... for yeah, me. yeah, I think that's a little too ridiculous for yeah. me. And then the constant uh, theme of how Scott Snyder writes his hero into a corner, and then the only way Batman gets out of these, uh, you know these death traps or deadly situations is by some 
again a, a really silly way like a lazy way yeah. of writing just sheer where dumb he luck opens the door and the room explodes and he manages to jump inside a suit of armor to protect yeah. himself yeah <sighs> yeah it's just it a lot of it just feels like sheer dumb luck <laughs> you know and yeah you know I, I i don't know if you know the bat god or the god of prep preparation version of batman is I don't know if, like, that's necessarily my version of Batman, but I will say that I don't think Batman's so dumb or so lame that he has to rely purely on dumb luck to get out of a situation. Yeah. I don't think he's prepared down to, like, every micron of, of... uh, to to every fine detail down to its last micron, but I don't think he's that other thing either. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Certainly yeah. not. Even the stories where I think Scott Snyder and Capullo, Greg Capullo, are trying to tell a story that has some sort of a like thematic resonance. Like I, I'm thinking of um, Death of the Family. Yeah, the Joker story, yeah. like where they're they're trying to make some points about the uh, Batman's supporting cast. I don't know, man. Like, I it just kind of seems like those stories fall flat to me, and I would I would I really would have to reread them in order to to give like a more uh, intellectual reason um, and explain better. But because it's it's been you know years since I've read those stories, but I I just remember the feeling that I walked away with and still pervades to this point in time is that those comics just uh, I didn't enjoy them you know like I I read them just because I knew it was popular and everybody seemed to like it so I just kept on reading yeah. it and you know it, it'd be like if you made me watch like fifty logan paul videos or something like i i probably still wouldn't like it yeah. you know no i i i think i was the same way it, so everybody was just so high on this batman that yeah i i felt the need to read up on it if only to stay uh up to date with it and there was a part of me that was like, oh, maybe there's something that I'm not getting, you know? So, so I stuck yeah. with it for a while. I don't, I don't remember how many issues in, but I want to say that I stopped reading after, what's it called, Zero Year? I think yeah. Zero Year might have been the last story that I read. And Yeah, and, and that's another one where it kind of feels like they thought it would be cool to put Batman in a situation where things are, you know, really extreme. You know, he's basically in a post-apocalyptic version of Gotham. Yeah. And then to make uh, the Riddler the the mastermind of that, uh, it it was just uh, kind of hard for me to swallow. Yeah. I, I think I read up to the point where Jim Gordon got the suit and then like midway through that, I didn't even finish reading that that trade like i borrowed it from the library and i saw that and i was like i'm done with I this just, i imagine you just throwing your hands up and you just yeah i gave up man yeah 
that 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 comic broke me harder than Bane broke Batman's back. <laughs> you know what the funny thing is, man? Like we often talk about like No Man's Land, and you talk about how you like you you don't buy yeah. the idea of No Man's Land because uh, the idea that this catastrophe would happen and that the American government would turn its back on Gotham City to the point where it, uh, you know. They just call it a DMZ, yeah, basically. Yeah, it becomes a DMZ, and they like everyone in Gotham basically just fends for themselves. Like, I, I have an easier time believing that for some reason than Zero Year. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, I, I don't agree know with what that. it is about Zero that. Year that makes it so much harder to believe than No Man's Land, but I think it might be because No Man's Land ends up being a story where you get to see the survivors of the city uh, forming packs and descending into tribalism. Um, and to me, that that's a little bit more believable than the city being in zero year being sealed off and then the Riddler becoming like this... this like uh, a games master or something. Yeah, and like he's he's ha- he's like some Roman emperor making people fight lions to, to the death yeah. or something. Like, I, I yeah, that yeah, that I don't understand I don't, that. I don't get how the Riddler became so. Like, I, I'd have, I might have to reread it, but I don't want to. But <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that's the thing. We we would have to reread these comics in order to properly dissect yeah. them and and you know give better reasonings as to why these stories fail but we don't really yeah. want to reread yeah i don't i don't get how the riddler became powerful enough to take over the entire city and even after he took over the city what's stopping superman from just going in there and just caving in his head <laughs> <laughs> i don't get it <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh <sighs> it's it's just one of those comics, man. We got to acknowledge that it's uh, popular, probably beloved by many, but yeah, it just ain't. It just ain't one of those comics that we appreciate. Yeah, it's it's Jake Paul. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're just too old, man. We're just too old for no, it. No, I refuse to. I refuse to be at fault for this. <laughs> They're the ones that are the problem. Okay. Yeah, they're they're just too young, man. They're just too young. <laughs> Why do they have to be so young? I hate them for their youth. <laughs> Why can't I drink their blood and receive their youth? <laughs> At the end of the day, Albert, do you think that the worst new 52 comics are better or worse? than the worst of the 90s comics that we grew up with? <sighs> Part of me wants to say that... I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm conflicted over this. Part of me wants to say that the New 52 is better, if only because it, the sensibilities were at least slightly more modern so that it was readable in that sense. But... Sure. Then I stop and think, well, they hired a bunch of guys like Dan Jurgens and Scott Lobdell and, you know, 
uh, George Perez, Paul Levitz, Paul Levitz, and like they got Ron, Ron Mars. Mars. Uh, no, Howard Mackey. Was, was Ron Mars doing stuff with him? He did voodoo. Oh, okay, Ron Mars, Howard Mackey. Yeah, Howard Mackey. Rob Liefeld. Liefeld. Exactly right. So all these dudes, <laughs> they like pulled out of cobwebs or whatever, dude. And like, <laughs> you know, th- at this point, they're like ten point ten years past their prime, even, and they're supposed to be writing like, you know how modern young 20 30 somethings speak or even teens um no like i remember reading old dan jurgen comics when he was writing thor in like the early no in the late 90s yeah it was like late 90s early 2000s yeah. and i remember reading that and he didn't have a he didn't have the ear for how people sounded then so <laughs> you know this idea that um, the new 52 is, yeah, it, it just brings me back to the idea that maybe the new 52 isn't, isn't better than the nineties comics. And it, it might just be on the same level at best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. point. Good point. <clears throat> what do you think? Some of those, uh, yeah, I don't I don't it's hard for me to say too because some of those uh 90s comics are pretty bad. Like I I wouldn't want to reread them, you know, like I would rather reread uh the Snyder Capullo Batman yeah. and and that Batman, their Batman, that's not the worst of the New 52, you know? Like as much as we mm-hmm. rag on it, like there's it's not the it's not the Dan Jurgens Justice League or or the Judd Winnick, uh, what did he write? Catwoman and probably something else. Like it, the Snyder Batman isn't the worst. It's not the Nadir of the line, yeah. but um, if we were to take some of those bottom of the barrel New 52 books and put them up against some of the bottom of the barrel 90s comics, it. I'd probably just rather play a video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Me too, man. <laughs> Ain't no denying that, man. Sometimes you just can't win. Sometimes you just can't get rid of a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you have anything else you want to say before we sign off, Albert? Um, for those of you listening, if you have uh, anything good to say about any of these comic the comments or uh, comics that we've uh, discussed today, even the ones that we uh, you know playfully ragged on, then you know message us and we'd like to hear about it and discuss it on you know you can. Send it to us via our our email address, uh, between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Or you yep. can uh, DM us on our Instagram. We'd, we'd totally love to hear from you guys. Or if there's something that we didn't mention, we'd love to hear that too. Um, yeah. If there's a hidden gem that we don't know about, man, like if, if Threshold is a good series, <laughs> tell us. <laughs> threshold is a series at all tell me because i don't know (laughs) it it existed man i think your eyes gloss over it every time we go to those quarter sales because it's it's just not something that you would ever buy 
I mean, it'd be the equivalent of me coming across like the silencer or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or uh, damage. Is that what 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 we what's out now? Um, I don't know, man. Or is it like berserk or something? I'm getting too old for. I mean, they're getting too young for us. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, or if you guys want to know more or have any questions uh, about it, yeah, let us know. We 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 totally are always happy to talk about more comics. Yep. And on that note, uh, make sure you put yourselves a bowl of Barbara's Morning Oat Crunch cereal, the official cereal of Between the Gutters. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you later, Home Slice. (laughs) Peace out.